0: Valerie's my mother's name.
1: Rush is for white
2: suburban boys.
1: Anybody remember cassettes?
3: My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. It's June... So, you know what I thought we would do? Pride show! It's Pride Week here in New York. It's Pride Month all over the country. Pride, 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 Pride. Pride. I love this time of year. I One of my top five, I would say, favorite New York memories, back in 2009, I got to march in the Pride Parade. I, I marched with the Gay Men's Health Crisis, we were right behind the flaggates. It was amazing. And then last year, another one in the top five, we got to do a live Pride soundtrack series at Stonewall. You're welcome. And it was perfect. Music and Pride go together. If you Google gay Pride music playlist, a gajillion hits for digital mixtapes packed with divas and dance anthems and songs of empowerment and Cher is on all of them. But what was so incredible Not only about doing an All Pride show last year and hearing men and women tell stories about music as it relates to their experiences as gay, lesbian, or transgender men and women, but just over the years, in general, so many people have just done this for the show. Talked about how music has mattered to them as LGBT people. So yes, Believe and Born This Way and what I just played, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real are musts on any gay pride playlist, but... There are other songs, maybe less obvious songs that are just as important to the Pride movement, but not because of how gay or fun or empowering they are, but because of its tie to just one person's story, one person's life, how that song meant the world to one person. And so over the years, we've heard incredible stories like these. And so for an all Pride episode, these are some of my favorites. Isaac Oliver is an author, most recently, of the book Intimacy Idiot, which is a collection of essays about him living the gay single life in New York City. And this past Valentine's Day, we did a music moments in movies show with the Bonnie and Maud film podcast at Videology. And Isaac very bravely told this one about the Counting Crows scored sex scene in Cruel Intentions and something very intimate that his best friend taught him to do.
2: My best friend in elementary and middle school taught me how to jerk off. <sighs> I was over at his house one afternoon after school. His parents were both tenured at a local college and never home. On their computer, he brought up a topless picture of Jenny McCarthy and eagerly turned to me for a reaction. I was already certain that Jenny McCarthy and her ilk weren't going to take because of, you know, Sally on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Uh, <laughs> Have you ever masturbated, my friend asked. No, never, I said. It's fine, it feels really good, he replied. Do you mind?
4: Uh,
2: (laughs) He unzipped his khakis, pulled out his dick, and slowly began to demonstrate. It felt impolite to not, in turn, pull out mine, so I did. and, And I tried to replicate his movements. We didn't say a word, he an angular science nerd and I a coarse-haired theater wisp, Uh, but we jerked off together all the time after that. We'd drop backpacks and trousers on opposing sides of whoever's room we were in, and we'd settle and silently busy ourselves, or we'd sit parallel in his parents' desk chairs, and fast-forwarding to and continually rewinding sex scenes in movies. So I took what I learned from him and I brought it home. I (laughs) snuck to the basement every night. I I was in the basement with cruel intentions every night. I brought this, I brought this to my friend and we watched it together. And you don't really see much of Reese Witherspoon in that scene. But I still was like, yeah, Reese Witherspoon. And we like would watch, you know, and we'd like jerk, and anyway. But we never touched. My friend and I, we never touched. We were merely separate drivers, you know, just caravanning towards the same destination, you know? <laughs> Maybe a year or so later, I told him I was gay. Uh, we were walking by a creek because I wanted my coming out to be as dramatic as possible. <laughs> uh, I could say one of three things, he replied, that I'm okay with it, that I'm not okay with it, or that I'm gay too, and I think I might be in love with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Ha, okay." And then, and then we just like kept walking and like didn't talk about it ever again. Uh, and you know, it's not until now, years later, when I was sort of you know writing some of this for for the book, that I I sat there and I was like, "Oh my God, was he actually like being serious and like going out on a huge limb with me?" And I was just like so self-involved and like just you know, not even thinking about real three-dimensional people that I just was like, pfft. And uh, you know, the thought that he could have cared for me in that way, what on earth could he want from me, you know? And looking back, you know, the the image of me as like like an early teen boy, just like sitting at the piano, like somberly playing that like dirge and being like, I am ready, I am ready. It's just so funny because at the moment I was like, I am ready. I am ready. But I look back and I'm like, you were not, like, I look at today and I'm like, you're not fucking ready. Like, you're not, (laughs) you're not ready. And, and, you know, the funny, thing, like, men, men have waited for me. But, like, unfortunately, I'm only looking for them at the top of escalators.
1: Pull me out from inside.
5: I am ready, I am ready, I
3: am ready I love that he came out to his friend by a creek Big moment, big drama Coming out is a big moment And actually though, sometimes, it's three big moments The third of which is inspired by a tall, tunic-wearing, bass-voiced grand dame of classic television Vine superstar Jeffrey Marsh told us how Hi,
6: I'm famous on the internet (laughs) Thank you (laughs) Thank you. And I should be totally accurate. I'm famous on an app. <laughs> Just <a laughs> There are tears. But I'm still higher than Instagram famous, huh? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So this is a special kind of fame. 18-year-old, anybody under 20, obsesses. I have 142 million views on vine they're obsessed what was i wearing what lip color etc 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 and i go home for thanksgiving and my aunt says what you doing with your life (laughs) do you have a real job i do coming out to my mother three times was fun the first time i was 11 years old and i had chosen to tell her after church in the car which probably wasn't the best choice. She was driving at the time. We had come to a bend in a country road. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. And I wanted to tell her so, so much. I wanted to say, I'm gender fluid. I'm pansexual. I'm omnibusual. I'm many things. I'm fabulous and I'm here to rule with Scott Bakula by my side. (laughs) But all I could manage, all I could come up with in 1988 was this really high-pitched squeak of a, you know, I think I like boys. From the front seat, she slams on the brakes and she turns the wheel. I think our car flew off a cliff and into a ravine. No, it didn't. We did go into the ditch and she damaged the car. The car came to a halt and she started screaming, you don't know anything about that. You're 11 years old, you can't talk about things like that. I got the message until I was 16. (laughs) Time number two. It was the parking lot of York Little Theater. I was in a production, I would like to say, can I just say right now, I starred in a production of The Velveteen Rabbit. You might be thinking I was the rabbit. No, I was the toy boat. I had, it was such an excuse to wear mascara, I am telling you. But it was also an excuse to strap a boat around me and put on roller skates. Roll in, say my lines, roll out. I was the star, okay? And after the show, I was still a little wound up and I was sitting in the front seat of the car with mom. I said again, I think I like boys. My voice still hadn't changed. And she said, you're only 16. You don't know anything about it. You can't say things like that. Perhaps a tear fell down (laughs) the pancake and onto my pants in the car. It would take two more years before that third attempt. Now, in the meantime, I was gathering strength. You see, this is a story of momentum. First time, second time, third time. First time was 1988, and then who's good at math? I was 16 in 93, thank you. And then it would be 95. This whole time I was gathering strength from a hero on TV. A tall hero with a deep, deep voice. She showed me each week that you can be gender different. You can express yourself with charm, with wit, with humor. And with Grace. I had just watched her show before the third time. I come rushing into the kitchen. Mom's back is to me. She's fixing something for dinner. My voice is a little, just just a little lower this time. I think I like boys. Oh, I knew that already. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've been telling you for years. (laughs) This was all happening, if you're keeping track, before Will and Grace, before Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Anyone remember that one? They were all sort of different, but all sort of the same. It was like, there was five of them and they were all stereotypes in different ways. (laughs) Anyway, we've come a long way since then. But the person I was talking about was before all of this, showing that you could be different, that you could be strong, that you could portray someone. That had strength, that had grace, that knew the score, and that could send in a heartbeat her mother back to Shady Pines. That person is no longer alive. She's no longer with us. But if she was here, I would have a lot to say to her about the strength that she gave me, about the lessons she taught me. If B. Arthur was here, I would say, B. <laughs> Thank you for being a friend.
3: So Jeffrey and I are friends almost 20 years, wow, yes, 1997, almost 20 years now. And at the live show, he also told this mini story. I didn't include it in this, but it was he told a story before telling his coming out story. And it was about me. And he and I used to perform in this cabaret together. And I guess one time we were sitting in the dressing room, read The Bathroom. And I was complaining about something. And at the end of it, I, I used a toilet, an actual I flushed the toilet to punctuate a sentence. I have no memory of this, uh, but Jeffrey does. And that is why you keep friends like Jeffrey Marsh around. A lot of reasons, but that's a big one. Now, Mariah McCarthy is a playwright and she has a one woman show called Baby Mama, which is about becoming pregnant and knowing you can't keep it, but wanting specifically to give your child to a gay couple, which she did. But for Soundtrack Series, Mariah told a story about the first time that she heard and saw her son's heartbeat and how the song at the time in her heart was Amanda Palmer's Trout Heart Replica.
5: The first time I saw my son's heartbeat as more than just a flicker, Amanda Palmer's Trout Heart Replica had just come out. It's the story of how she went with some friends to... Uh, uh, meat market, a fish market. And the butcher cut the heart out of a trout in front of her and her friends and held it up to them, still beating. And there's this like haunting refrain that goes back again and again. It's like, and it's beating, and it's beating, and I don't want to know. So that song had just come out and I was at this ultrasound, and uh, when Trout Heart Replica came out, I wasn't with my usual gynecologist. I had to go to a separate facility for the anatomy scan, which is basically just an ultrasound technician rubs the thingy on your tummy with the goo, and you watch on a big screen TV as she points out body parts. That's a forearm, that's the top of his head. And this is when we determined for sure that it was his head. Um, She showed me an inkblot splotch that was allegedly a fetus penis, but to me it looked like a butterfly. I don't know what that means. And uh, my usual gynecologist knew that I was planning to place my baby for adoption, but this woman did not. So I think she was confused, because I imagine that some of the women who come in there, maybe they have their husbands with them, and they see all the body parts, and maybe there's more squealing, and oh my god. And I was just alone and watching and quiet, and I think she was thrown off. She kept saying, are you okay? And I was fine, I just had nothing to say. Sweet. That's a femur, good job. And then I saw his heartbeat. I saw it before she pointed it out to me. You know a heartbeat when you see it. I had seen it at the very first ultrasound, but that had just been a tiny flickering light. Like, the dis- this was a fucking heartbeat. Like, the difference between like, eh? and k-tong, k-tong, k-tong. fucking heartbeat. I said, is that the heart? And my, my voice was lower and I couldn't keep the awe out of it. And she said, yeah. It's the one time I asked her a question. And she confirmed at the end of the scan that everything looked okay and left me with three printouts, his profile, his feet, and his little Rorschach test butterfly dick. And I left the hospital and I sat in the garden out front and I looked at my printouts and I listened to Amanda Palmer's Trout Heart Replica over and over on repeat. And it's beating, and it's beating, look it's still beating. I stayed there until standing up and walking to the subway seemed like a feasible task. My baby had a sex, and he had a heart. And yes, even though I was planning to place him for adoption, he was and is my baby. <laughs>
1: Circling, they've been circling
2: since the day they were born. It's disturbing. Now, I was saying
3: that last year we did a live show for Pride at Stonewall, and at that show, one of the storytellers was Whitney Joyner. She's the senior editor at Marie Claire, but she's also the co-founder of The Recollectors, which is an online community of people who have lost parents to AIDS, and it's a place for them to share their stories about it. So at this show last year, Whitney told the story about her father who died of AIDS-related illness in 1992, but then, 13 years later, how she and her brother were finally able to find the perfect way to honor his memory at an erasure show.
0: Every other weekend, my parents would trade us off. We'd meet in a parking lot in Frankfurt, halfway between Louisville and Lexington. In the dark, on the way back to Dad's house, we'd listen to his favorite cassette tapes, which became our favorites, too. George Michael, Modern English, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, (laughs) In Excess, Elton John, and this new band that dad had discovered and loved, Erasure. I wanna play you something, he said one night on the way home, and he popped in a dubbed cassette of Erasure's chorus. He fast forwarded to Am I Right, a melancholy song about a man searching in vain for his lost lover in the city where they first met. Isn't this beautiful? At the time, I was about 12, and I didn't know the singer was singing about a man, I didn't know any gay men. And as we continued to listen to Erasure more than any other band for the next two years, I never realized that the songs were explicitly, clearly, obviously about men. So meanwhile, we periodically accompanied, accompanied our father to the doctor with this mysterious blood problem. And every once in a while, he was saying these strangely uncomfortable and slightly scary things like, if anything ever happens to me, you'll be taken care of. In 1992, two years after my father first played chorus for us in the car, he passed away in the Lexington Hospital. And for a long, long time, I didn't feel safe to talk about him around my mother and my other family, to admit that I loved him or missed him or felt anything except anger toward him. He'd lied to them about his sexuality. There was a sense of relief in my house that he was gone, that this embarrassment was gone. But every once in a while when I needed to secretly cry about him, or I wanted to remind myself how much I loved him and why, I'd listen to Erasure, and I'd think about driving around Lexington in dad's old black BMW when I didn't know he was dying, when we car danced, <laughs> and wa- he waved to strangers like he was imitating Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> and I'd feel ashamed for our shame, and ashamed that I wasn't there for him more in those last months. And it would take many, many years before I would realize that I just didn't know how. So in 2005, Erasure went on tour. It had been 13 years since dad died. We still barely talked about him. But this, I could do. I could go to this show. Because I loved Erasure too. And seeing dad's favorite band in his stead, I mean, who could argue with that? And nobody would have to know. It would just be me and my brother and my father's spirit so it wasn't until andy bell walked out on the irving plaza stage wearing nothing but a white diaper (laughs) (laughs) and massive angel wings (laughs) that my brother and i realized exactly how gay (laughs) they were and what we were about to see and what was happening on stage was such a spectacle it was so amazingly awesomely proud and unashamed, and was so joyful and celebratory, the opposite of the undercurrent of our daily lives growing up and after his death. It was the gayest thing we had ever seen. I actually went to Smith College, so maybe it wasn't the gayest thing I'd ever seen. (laughs) But it was the gayest gay male thing I'd ever seen. And to think how much Dad loved this band. And to know later, we found out later that he'd been active in the club scene in Lexington and Louisville where he must have danced to these songs and cruised to these songs and fucked to these songs or whatever he was doing, these songs. And to think of how he denied his homosexuality until he died, to me and to my mom and whoever else. This whole like, I'm not gay, I'm just HIV positive in the 80s and I love all these gay things. (laughs) So we danced to drama and to stop and to victim of love and to who needs love like that and to all of our favorites. And Drew and I kept looking at each other with these huge smiles and shaking our heads at how funny it all seemed and just how wild it all was. This is so gay and it is so amazing. For the first time we saw this new facet of our father's personality. Like maybe he wasn't always the uncomfortably repressed, angry but loving man that we had remembered. That if he reveled in this music so much, I mean maybe I'm making huge leaps here, but still, if he reveled in this music so much, which was so open and honest and proud and gay, (laughs) and he shared it with us. Maybe he wasn't just a sad, repressed man who never came out. Suddenly all his idiosyncrasies came together in a way they never had before. I mean, there had to have been a part of him that was joyful and free somehow, and okay. And maybe he only found that on the dance floor. And I have no idea, and I'll probably never know. But I did know the words to almost every song. And when we left that night, sweaty and wrung out, something had transformed within us. And we left with a fuller picture of the possibility of who he was and a sense of magic and light and release. And we had finally celebrated our father in a way that felt true and real and meaningful. And I thought back to 1992 when we stood by dad's grave at the funeral that he had planned for himself, where we sang Amazing Grace and everyone I imagined wished they could have been anywhere but there. And to me that night, 13 years later in Irving Plaza, that was the real memorial where my brother and I got to remember the person we loved deeply and truly, and we left feeling proud and a little less burdened. And like maybe somehow we knew our father just a little bit more.
3: Okay, you know how music videos are great, and sometimes you want to imitate your favorite ones? And then you know how sometimes you want to imitate your favorite ones in public with your friends and occasionally a bunch of strangers? Sure you do, because we've all done Thriller somewhere. But have you ever gotten hate-crimed for it? Storyteller Eric Thomas has. And all for just trying to love Beyoncé the only way he knows how.
4: And we would get off of work late. And, uh, and so sometimes we would get in our minds to just tell people that we were missionaries because we thought that was hilarious. And I would be like, oh, I'm a Jehovah's Witness because, you know, whatever. And my James, who's blonde hair and blue eye, would say he was a Mormon and we would just try and convert people. We don't know where we we're trying to convert them to. We we're just trying to convert them to something. Um, and every time this song would come on, in and and this part, this part right here, there's like instructions. And all the type A gays would go insane. Like, instructions, yes! <laughs> Because she's like, she wants you to snap your fingers, and she wants you, to, oh, Naomi Campbell, walk, Naomi Campbell, walk, walk across the floor, like Naomi Campbell, walk. My favorite part. So there's one part where she's just like, stop, a cool off, cool off, drop, a cool off, and I love that part because I get hot sometimes, like when I'm dancing. One night. We're at the club. Well, it's just me and James. So we're in our black bottoms and white tops, and like nobody's dancing. And Get Me Body comes on, and we've already got the moves. But like the dance floor is empty, and so we decide that we need to proselytize. We need to get this party started. We could just we split up and we go, and I just we're just shaking hands like like Bill Clinton on the cam tra- campaign trail. Like I feel your pain. I know you're sad. I need you to just come on the dance floor with me and just move your body a little bit. Just get just get body. Just get a little bodied. And and so I just worked the line all the way around, and James worked the line and by the time that i got to the other side of the room everyone was dancing the floor was full of people and i was ecstatic but i had lost james and i didn't know i was i was freaking out i was like oh my gosh i've started the party everyone's getting bodied it's cool off cool off cool off everything is happening but where is he and i freaked out and so i did and what you do anytime you lose somebody i like i put my thing down flipped it and reversed it and I, I just started backing up wildly. And I backed up so fast, and I turned, and I ran smack into James right in the face. And his nose started bleeding, just like pouring blood onto his white shirt. And he's laughing hysterically because he's like, we started the party. And I'm like, we started the party. And that was exactly what our friendship was for so much of that time. Everyone was, someone was always laughing, and someone was always crying, and somebody was always bleeding. Um, <laughs> Christmas of that year, we went out to a, um, a straight bar and uh, I was wearing a, a pink sparkly Santa hat because festivities. And uh, Get Me Body came on and uh, we started dancing in the middle of the club like we always did. And there was a guy who was like looking at me from across the room. and I couldn't really figure out. I was like, oh, well, hello. Good, hello. Merry Christmas to me. Two o'clock comes. and We come outside and uh, we're talking and the guy comes up. And he starts yelling at me and pushing me. And I was like, oh, well, this is fascinating. And my friends immediately were were on it and they were yelling back. And then another guy comes up and he tries to sort of separate me and the tall guy. And I'm like, okay, great, because I don't fight. I'm not a fighter. I'm a dancer, not a fighter. And the guy who tried to separate us all of a sudden turns to me and punches me right across the head. And they kicked our asses. It was all of us, except for James. And, and so we, we came home, um, back to my place, We're battered, I, it was ugly. Someone was always bleeding, somebody was always crying. But I think back to that, that summer and then that winter, and I think back to that moment where the fist came flying across my face, right after a moment of such exuberance, dancing to get me bodied. There was, it was a time that I really felt unactual, and it was a time that I really felt uh, like not a person. And I, and I know what that punch was about, rather it was about, my sexuality or whatnot, it was somebody trying to say that you were not what you think you are. You are not allowed to to be happy right now. But what that I didn't know is that I had the missionaries behind me, that I had the true faith. Six years ago, Adiva saved my life and the missionaries saved my soul.
3: I can't even imagine. I would like to say that if I was publicly imitating the video for Express Yourself and someone punched me for it that I would totally punch back with my foot. But I don't know that I would. And I don't know that I could. Storyteller Holly Lorca spent 23 years disguised as a straight woman before deciding that costume was not a very good one. And so she came out and what do you know, George Michael was right there for her first lesbian experience. In
7: 1993, I came out Up to that point, I'd had sex with numerous men and it was always okay. But I didn't really want to have sex with men. What I really wanted was to have sex with girls. I'd fantasized about it for my entire life. And in 1993, everything conspired to give me the courage to finally do something about it. So at the age of 23, I dumped my fiance, cut off my enormous perm and sauntered on over to Homerville. I remember sitting at my desk and writing in my journal after I came out about how wonderful my life was now going to be, how women are so lovely and sweet and kind. (laughs) How I was sure that from now on, my life would smell like fresh-baked cookies and that tiny bluebirds would bring me my robe in the mornings while the indigo girls serenaded me. When I began going to the gay bar, my nights there were generally uneventful. I was nervous and all I could muster were brief conversations with women that I didn't want to know. Mostly I sat at the bar, drank a few beers and kept to myself. It seemed being gay was kind of like being at the airport. (laughs) And then I met Jessica. She was young like me and cute and sweet and polite and she bought me a drink and let me kiss her in the parking lot that night. We both so very shy, barely touching each other, except at the mouth, which was enough to melt us down to the concrete under our feet. The next time I saw her, we went to her place to have gay sex. (laughs) She let me in and we went to her room where she put some music on. It was the album Faith by George Michael. when we got down to it. It was incredibly hot, yet incredibly sweet, and maybe a little clumsy, but hey, I was still learning. We went slowly, listening to gorgeous George while our hands and mouths and bodies moved against each other. We spent such a long time together. It was like watching a sunset that started at noon. It was so much better than being at the airport. Who knows how many times the album repeated that night? I lay there afterwards in the flicker of candlelight, stroking her arms, her back, her hair, and I was so overtaken with the tenderness of the moment. I began singing Father Figure to her along with George. There I was singing in my ironic little high breathy voice to a girl in her bed while naked that I was going to be her daddy. And I thought nothing of it, like it was the most natural thing in the world to do. The song was saying everything about love and innocence that I felt that night. I mean, besides the whole father thing. I was overwhelmed by cookies and bluebirds right there. All the things I thought about Homoville were true. But a few months later, she broke up with me. She chose being a pro tennis player over being gay, and I certainly couldn't blame her. But my experience with her left me aching for more of this tender gayness that she proved to me existed. Every time I heard father figure, it broke my heart a little. But it also reminded me of how wonderful it was now that I was a lesbian.
3: Turns out being gay is a lot like being at the airport. That is a t-shirt begging to be made. And finally, actor and performer Kevin R. Free came out to his strict father. They would call him the colonel, Colonel Free. He came out to his father in 1994. But it wasn't until 2013 and the passing of DOMA that year that Kevin got the phone call from his dad that he'd been waiting for.
1: And then after college, I, uh, on Thanksgiving Day, 1994, I said to my dad, so, Dad, you know I'm gay, right? And Dad said, <laughs> he was putting on his socks, so he dropped a sock on the floor and dr- hung his head, and he said, well, I figured, and... <laughs> so that was the first part. It wasn't really dramatic. It was just sort of like, oh, oh, he knew already. But of course, he wasn't going to say anything. And he said, but I had hoped it wasn't true. And I said, well, it is true. And in February, nineteen ninety-five, I'm having a wedding. I'd love it if you could come. <laughs> so he said, no, I'm not coming to that. I'm not coming to the wedding. And so I said to him, well, Keith, the guy that I was marrying at the time, I, I told him, well, Keith's mother is going to be a part of the wedding, and my stepmother was going to be a part of the wedding, so it would be great for you to come because I'm probably never gonna get married, ever. And he didn't come to the wedding, he didn't change his mind, and I should have taken the opportunity then to say to him, well, I guess since she's not my blood, she's my love's mother, that love is thicker than water, It's also thicker than blood, Dad. But I didn't say that, because that marriage ended, and when that marriage ended, my dad was my best friend again. (laughs) I think he just didn't like the guy. Because I met another guy, and we've been together for 15 years since then. I was going to end the story there and just say that, you know, love of blood because he's my blood is thicker than water but I have—I feel like I have to share with you the voicemails that I received when DOMA passed if you don't mind if you'll indulge me for just a moment this was alright this was the first message from Colonel Free hey Kevin I, I
3: thought maybe your line would be busy but
0: I, I just saw the recent
1: The Supreme Court decision, I know you and Carl are happy. That's great. Carl's the name of my partner. Uh, And then he called back a second later, a minute later, and said, I'm happy for
6: you, too. Talk to you later. Bye.
1: That's Colonel Free. It's so funny. funny. The best part about that is that I ain't getting married anytime soon.
3: Look at that. Seven Pride stories, not one share song. It's not intentional, I promise. And that's it. That is our Pride episode. Thanks again to Isaac Oliver, Jeffrey Marsh, Mariah McCarthy, Whitney Joyner, R. Eric Thomas, Holly Lorca, and Kevin R. Free for sharing these amazing stories with Soundtrack Series over the last few years. And, and these are just a few to everyone who has shared a story where music has helped you to be brave be human and be yourself. Thank you. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Happy Pride, and thanks for listening.